Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today is Ethan Lane. He's the executive director of the Public Lands Council, a branch of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and the Center for Public Policy. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tip. We met, I believe, for the first time at an annual utilization monitoring field day in Washington State a couple years ago that uh, drew about 100 ranchers and quite a few agency personnel. That kind of attendance is pretty rare, especially in June, but this was in response to a conflict. Uh, Ethan and I agree that you should never waste a good crisis, but it would be nice to get beyond crisis to some stable state where ranchers are doing a good job documenting it and can tell their story to the world. And the NCBA has done a good job of promoting that goal and making it happen. Uh, It looks from your title that you wear more than one hat. Is that the case? I wear multiple hats. Yeah, that is definitely true. So is the Center for Public Policy a separate entity from the NCBA? So, so it's not, but I will clarify, PLC often is, is described as an extension of NCBA or a division of NCBA. That's, that's not accurate. Um, the Public Lands Council is a standalone entity. Um, the, 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 Center for Public, the NCBA Center for Public Policy is how we describe our, our D.C. Uh, office for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Um, and it is truly that. NCBA here in D.C. has 20 staff members. Uh, and they are policy experts covering the range of issues uh, confronting the cattle industry, everything from trade to animal health to cattle markets to natural resources, federal lands, Endangered Species Act, fake meat, uh, you name it. We, we have somebody <laughs> deep into the weeds working on that issue all the time. Um, and, and so that's why, uh, that's why we describe ourselves uh, that way. Uh, in, in my role as the executive director of the Public Lands Council, I do wear a, a separate hat from my role as senior executive director of federal lands for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Okay. And in that role, I, I do serve as the chief executive of the Public Lands Council, which is a standalone uh, organization. Uh, we have our own budget, we have our own board, and we have the National Cattlemen's Beef Association as an affiliate. They sit on our board as one of our three national affiliates. So the American Sheep Industry Association similarly has a board seat, as does the Association of National Grasslands. And then all of the Western public lands grazing states uh, have a seat on our board. And those in-state seats, according to our bylaws, uh, are, are made up of board members who are sent by the various livestock associations in each state. So every state in the West uh, I cracks that nut in a different way. So Mm -hmm. in Wyoming, you have the Wyoming Public Lands Coalition, which is made up of the Wyoming Stock Growers, the Wyoming Wool Growers, and the Wyoming State Grazing Board. In in other states, uh, it's a different, little different makeup. But in all of them, it creates a a really good synergy with the National Public Lands Council because by the time that board member comes to uh, a PLC board call or a PLC annual meeting, They've ostensibly had conversations in state and are able to speak for a broad range of of livestock production groups in that state, uh, which really gives PLC a unique perspective 
uh, because we are pulling not just from cattle, but sheep as well. Uh, we're balancing some of those issues that are unique to the to the sheep industry, uh, as well as some of those that are unique to the cattle industry. And we're also looking at those things that are uh, that are impactful to everyone grazing livestock on public lands. And it gives us a forum where we can really receive input from a lot of the state associations and and how they're tackling these issues, maybe uh, different aspects of a problem that that somebody's experiencing, say in Washington State, that's a little different than than how they're how they're seeing it in South Dakota. Um, right. So it's really kind of a unique form in that in that respect, and it gives us a voice in Washington that really would be decentralized otherwise. Uh, we, you know, our, our goal is to support our state affiliates, to echo their voice in Washington, and and quite frankly, to to throw as wide a shadow as possible in this town full of people trying to throw wide shadows uh, and make sure that our voices are represented. Uh, what else does, does the Public Lands Council do then? Is it primarily lobbying? And to what extent does that extend to the, uh, the state governments? So we don't deal with the state governments at all. That, that's really probably something better left to our affiliates, obviously, uh, whether it's the Washington Cattlemen or, or the Oregon Cattlemen's Association or anybody else. They, they have those in-state relationships and and it, we rely on them to to make the best calls for their members in those respective states. Where where we really add value is in that federal conversation. So uh, yeah, we are, we are a lobbying organization, absolutely. I'm a registered lobbyist, as is uh, Tanner Beamer, who is also on my staff. Um, and in that capacity, we spend a good portion of our time up on Capitol Hill talking to members of Congress, talking to senators, uh, educating their staffs, participating in briefings, uh, organizing testimony for uh, congressional hearings. And, and then we spend the rest of our time here in Washington at the federal agencies. So BLM, Forest Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, NRCS, uh, we, we try to make sure that the industry is represented there, that we have relationships in place uh, and, and that we have an open and, and functioning dialogue, which, you know, honestly, with as many moving parts as we have in Western land management today is, is probably one of the most important aspects of that relationship. Uh, members of Congress come and go, their priorities ebb and flow with the election cycle and everything else. But those those federal agencies are really in the business of managing these resources. Uh, and that tends to outlast, you know, an administration or a particular Congress or a particular mood in the country. Um, so it's important for us at the national level to have both of those conversations going on at once and to recognize that often they are very different conversations, although we're pursuing the same goals. Yeah, I think people who are not familiar with what lobbying looks like on the ground have the you know stereotypical negative connotation of lobbying. But having worked for two years as the executive for the State Cattlemen's Association here in Washington, uh, we really did spend nearly all of our time trying to inform policymakers about issues that they otherwise really truly would not understand much about at all. Uh, and of course... You know, there's an attempt to sway public policy, but uh, a large majority of what we did was primarily informing. Yeah, it it is. It is. I mean, it, it's and 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 it's hard to tell all the time what the best uh, course of action is at any one point because you know people do have preconceived notions. They do kind of have thoughts formed, and and all too often those those ideas are formed by exposure to you know half of an article they read three weeks ago. Or you know something they saw in National Geographic, but maybe didn't didn't really get the main takeaway from it. And so it's really important for us to backfill with that and and make sure we educate people. So you know sometimes we are persuading, and other times we're simply educating. 
what issues are on the front burner for the PLC right now? You know, we're, we're focused uh, pretty heavily right now on regulatory reform. Obviously, we have an administration in place at the moment that has really uh, made themselves open to looking at some of these programs to see how they might be able to run better. Uh, you know, it's been an interesting conversation to be a part of because I think during the Obama administration, uh, regardless of your politics, just just looking at at how they ran their their shop, it was a pretty closed environment at the federal agencies. Uh, they they weren't really interested in in broad based uh, discussion of how these programs work. It was much more of a preservation mentality. Um, this this and preservation of the program, I should be more specific. Um, and in this administration, they've been far more willing to bring everybody to the table and say, all right, everybody fight it out. Let's figure out how to make it work better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that often results in, in, in things that maybe aren't, uh, specifically the exact prescription that we might think is needed in any particular circumstance. But, you know, looking at it from that persuasive lobbyist point of view, I'm, I'm trying to find a path forward to policies that we're not going to spend the next 10 years trying to defend in a subsequent administration. So, you know, we're always looking at that long-term durability and that means building stakeholder support. That means engaging groups that necessarily don't agree with us. Um, you know, it, it means making sure that what we're working on isn't just good for us, but is good policy period. Because if it's good policy period, then it's going to be beneficial for us down the line. We've, we've been subject to so many bad policies and, and so many policies that were sort of put in place with an aim towards reducing the footprint of grazing, um, that we've really spent a lot of time trying to unwind some of that and, and make sure that we're getting proper recognition as the tool that, that we are in, in managing federal lands, um, while also making sure that we are continuing to move the needle on, on rangeland health and, and uh, uh, you know, building that, building that web of support that, that reaffirms how important grazing is. I was part of a, a leadership conference in D.C., I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, and we had a, a political consultant who came and spoke with the group. She'd been in D.C. for about 25 years. And somebody asked her in a Q&A why she felt that the polarization had been increasing over the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years, <clears throat> political polarization. And, and her answer was really interesting. She felt like because of digital media and so much transparency in government that there's no room for anyone to negotiate. There's no room you know, for a dark smoke-filled room in which people can move off of their tightly held positions and move a little bit more toward somebody else. Nobody can give an inch because everything that they say and and think almost is going to be broadcast to the entire world. So the idea of having an open dialogue where people who disagree with each other can discuss it and not just camp out on their talking points seems like it's pretty important. It, it is. And what's interesting is, I mean, I think in the national media, certainly, and even in some corners of DC, I think ranchers unfairly get labeled as being sort of immovable objects on a lot of these, on a lot of these issues. But what we find is as we engage in some of those sort of, you know, smoke filled room conversations, although there are very few actual smoke filled rooms anymore, uh, as much <laughs> as I love a good cigar, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting that our members, particularly in the West, are so much more open 
to trying to find a path forward and trying to find common ground um, than some of the NGOs, uh, you know, some of these conservation groups, even if they have the best of intentions. Um, what we often find is that they have a far greater lift to sell compromise to a, a, a support base of members or check writers um, that, that really has bought into, uh, you know, an idea that's been sold by those groups than us. You know, at the end of the day, our biggest goal is to make sure that our, our producers on the ground have a stable business environment and, and are free from regulatory overreach and can put the best product out the door while putting the best conservation practices possible on the ground. Um, there are a lot of different ways to accomplish that and make sure that our members' interests are protected. Um, so in that respect, despite the public perception, uh, you know, we, we're, we're halfway home just because our folks are, are just so eager to get something done. Back up just a touch before we jump into talking about um, rangeland monitoring and, and tracking rangeland health on both public and private lands. Uh, what was your pathway to doing policy work for the NCBA? How did you get where you're at? You know, it's it's been an odd, strange trip for sure. Um, you know, I started my career. I'm from Arizona originally, fifth generation. Um, came from an agricultural background, and and I grew up with horses and cattle. I grew up showing quarter horses and team roping, and um, so you know, our a lot of our our friends in the industry always laugh about uh, about team ropers, and I certainly fit that description for better or worse. Um, but I I grew up in a in a family that that really made its bones working on public lands issues in the West, working on Western water issues, um, and, and working in Western real estate. My, my dad was a state land commissioner in Arizona when I was a kid, um, after uh, doing a stint for the, uh, 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 Department of Interior during the Carter administration in the land and minerals hallway as a special assistant. Hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I grew up around this stuff. My mom, uh, was, a was a, a, a policy, uh, specialist at the uh, uh, Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee when Flipma was wrote, written. So, I mean, it, you know, th this this is sort of in my blood, I guess, to a certain extent. Uh, I started my career as a commercial real estate broker, actually, uh, uh, selling and buying ranch property and commercial property in Arizona. Um, and uh, that was a family business that I got my start in. I spent 10 years uh, doing that and and built a pretty large portfolio of ranch property in the state of Arizona for uh, some of our high net worth clients. And in the process of putting together, you know, 20 some odd ranches, um, really kind of was baptized by fire on some of the issues that you have to deal with in managing these environments that have deeded land and forest service permits and BLM permits and state lease. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all of the challenges that come with that and, and how they grow exponentially as your portfolio grows. Um, so in 2009, when the real estate market had sort of reached its doldrums, uh, my wife and I had a long conversation and decided that if we were ever going to go get into politics, which was sort of our passion um, from the time we met in middle school through high school and college, um, we better speak now or, or put it out of our minds forever. So we packed up and moved to Washington in 2010. Um, and she went to work on Capitol Hill. And uh, I started working uh, in, uh, uh, in a consulting capacity. I consulted uh, on multiple congressional campaigns. I, I ran a successful congressional campaign um, in northern Michigan in the 2012 cycle. Um, and uh, I worked on a bunch of other ones and uh, started picking up consulting clients, lobbying clients. I uh, spent several years with my own practice here in D.C., built that up. Um, and did a lot of work on endangered species, waters of the United States, working for Western oil and gas producers, um, as well as uh, ranching interests in different parts of the West, uh, a little bit of mining, kind of a mixed bag of resource issues. 
And through that work, got to know my predecessor, Dustin Van Lu. So when he decided to leave, uh, we kind of had that that conversation and it seemed like a good opportunity to kind of come home to to the part of the resource industry that, that really is sort of in my blood. Um, and, you know, w- without question, it's been the best decision I ever made. I, I, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of having built a successful uh, political consulting practice in a town like D.C., um, but boy, nothing can replace the work I do now, who I do it for, or how I get to spend my days. So uh, it, it was kind of a twisty path that ended up with me being right back in my backyard. And, and there's, you know, no matter what I do in this job, there's nothing cooler than my parents reading my name in the Western Livestock Journal or something like that. Because at the end of the day, that's all we really want, right, is to make our parents think we're doing something productive with our time, even if we live across the country. That's right. That's the acid test. Uh, yeah, thank you for what you do. Alexis de Tocqueville said, I don't know, 150 years ago, that one of the features of American life that made America strong uh, was what he called its mediating institutions, organizations like the NCBA, the Boy Scouts, churches, League of Women Voters, you name it, all these organizations that that uh, represent people and give people a voice and kind of uh, you know, duke it out on the public stage. There really was truly an an open dialogue about about big ideas. Uh, so I think what the NCBA does is pretty important, uh, as well as the fact that surveys routinely show that organizations like the, the NCBA are the most highly trusted sources of information uh, for farmers and ranchers in particular. Extension often comes in second, so it is important for people like me to work with people like you to help ranchers succeed environmentally, socially, and uh, economically. I mentioned that I worked for two years as the executive vice president for the Washington Cattlemen's Association. Uh, This was 01, 02, 03. That was a period of time when the beef industry nationwide was splitting over some political issues uh, like packer ownership, country of origin labeling. But during that time, I felt that any political success we had at the state level usually could be traced to demonstrating the environmental sustainability of rangeland-based beef production. And so I had an opportunity to work for WSU as a uh, extension faculty. So I, I switched horses, so to speak, but I really affirmed the importance of industry associations as agents of change and real help to ranchers. Uh, so the next question is, what all does the NCBA do in the Public Lands Council in terms of education? Uh, we've talked a bit about advocacy, uh, which is really broader than lobbying, uh, but what about education? Well, you know, I, I think that's really at the core of, of how we spend our time is is educating audiences that that don't understand the full picture. Um, you know, the, the the debate playing out and it's sort of it's it's removed from the rangeland conversation, but I'm going to bring it back home because I don't think it's that far removed. But the the Green New Deal um, that was that was floated here at the beginning of this Congress by some of these new members uh, that came in in this wave last last fall, uh, obviously had this reference to farting cows, which, you know, for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons we know is uh, just patently false on its face. Um, but it's, it's given rise to a, a broad range of uh, folks on the on the left primarily um, making really uninformed statements and and pushing this idea of you know reducing beef consumption somehow uh, being the magic bullet to to uh, affect climate change and you know so we view that as a really important thing to push back on particularly since their information is just so 
completely inaccurate. Uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York just announced uh, he's uh, introducing Meatless Mondays, and in his um, in his his uh, press conference to announce it, made the statement that something I think he said thirty or forty percent of greenhouse gas emissions is attributable to livestock production. Uh, that, I mean, that's just that's just not accurate. He's either grossly misleading his his uh, his constituents, or he's he's you know grossly uninformed. But it's two percent. Livestock production in the United States is two percent of greenhouse gas emissions, and it's three percent if you include include inputs at the at the feedlot. So mm-hmm. when you when you look at the actual percentage and you look at what we produce for that, you look at the the, the mouths we feed, the the high quality protein that we're able to put on tables across the world at this point, and and the fact that we do that while also managing rangelands exponentially better than we have in the past, to the point where you you know as well as I do, we have data now that shows that in many areas, a well-managed grazing system can actually be a carbon sink, uh, that mm-hmm. we can actually get to zero or, or start putting putting uh, uh, carbon back on the grid, so to speak, um, in, in, those, in those areas. And, and from, from my money, the, nowhere is a better example of that than in the Western United States, where we have these large landscapes that we're managing and, and maintaining intact and, and making available for wildlife. And, and, and you know, we're doing all that while also putting the best product in the world on, on people's plates. Anywhere our trade folks go around the world, what they hear is there is no beef available anywhere on planet Earth better than the beef produced in the United States. Full stop. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it really is a, a cool opportunity. And I was on the, uh, the BBC yesterday um, talking about a, a UN climate and wildlife report that just came out that was extremely dire and oh you know the sky is falling as the un is sort of uh, want to do in those kind of reports and I, you know i made this this statement on the on the bbc broadcast and the the host came back at me and said well don't you have a responsibility you know to to producers in the rest of the world it's absolutely not my my responsibility is to american beef producers to to make sure that folks know that they are producing the best product in the world and they're doing it in a way that should be the model of sustainability for the rest of the world and, and I mean, I think that's something that really uh, NCBA plays a leading role in, in educating people on both on Capitol Hill and in the public to help them understand that just because you saw something in a Netflix documentary, um, you know, there are entire categories, there's an entire cottage industry that's cropped up around these these dark conspiracy fueled food documentaries and, and the beef industry is a favorite target of those. Just because you see those those sort of fact-free documentaries, the reality is is a far better story and 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 one that we should really be leaning into uh, in order to to find ways to make those kinds of gains in other parts of agriculture. Um, so I mean that's that's a that's that's a, a tool that NCBA uh, is able to use because of the the presence that we spend so much time building nationally. I mean that credibility doesn't come overnight. Uh, you know the media landscape in in 2019 is is unbelievably quick, and your ability to impact a national story or to get our voice a national story uh, comes down to minutes sometimes. Um, so, you know, being able to, to react to that quickly, to have the organizational capacity, both in communications, you know, in those relationships with reporters, as well as the policy knowledge to know what that argument needs to look like. Um, that's the that's the, the the value proposition as far as education that NCBA can bring to the table uh, as far as that narrative that shapes up every every, you know, five, 10 hours with uh, with a multi deadline per day. Uh, environment that we're seeing in the news culture right now, but there's also that that need to educate producers on the ground um, and 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 make sure that 
our folks understand the challenges that we're facing nationally, the challenges that are being presented to us by our own consumers, right? I mean, I think all too often it's it's easy for us to forget that we have customers out there and those customers um, can choose to go somewhere else. Um, they often don't because at the end of the day, um, I'm going to pick a, a burger or a steak over a chicken breast every single time it's available. Um, and I think most other most other people that that uh, that are in that category will as well. Um, but you know, it is important to help our producers understand, you know, where they need to maybe make their efforts better known. I mean, I you know, I've always said you want to know. The, the 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 skinny on wildlife in a particular area and i grew up hunting on public lands in the west obviously uh you don't talk to a hiker that's walking through you talk to the rancher that's managing that environment there's not going to be a better informed expert on on deer populations or birds or anything else on on his ranch than him or her and i uh, that's that's a testament to to what our folks do but as you well know um we don't we don't sell ourselves to the public that way as often as we should. We don't take as much credit as we should. My my staff gets irritated with me because I'm I'm uh, fond of of using the phrase "You're welcome, America" over and over and over again in our office. But I think it's a concept that we need to get more comfortable with because we do put a lot of good work on the ground and we don't take enough credit for it uh, all too often. And it puts us in a defensive posture sometimes that I don't think we deserve to be in. Yeah, I think. There, this this should be one of the easiest stories to tell. People are going to get tired of me saying that rangeland-based beef production is nearly by definition the most sustainable form of food and fiber production. Yep. Uh, because it's one of the only one of the only industry segments w- where you're producing food in the same space that you're producing this whole other suite of ecological goods and services: clean air, clean water, wildlife habitat. That should be it an easy story to tell. Absolutely. We are the last of the true free range uh, uh, productions, right? I mean, that's, that's it. And I think probably in recognition of that, there's been a, a shift in government programs to incentivize good stewardship instead of paying farmers not to farm uh, like we did with the CRP program, which had its place, uh, which reminds me of a rabbit trail that I'm going to take just in case I forget about <laughs> it later. At one time, the Chicago Climate Exchange had a carbon market for grazing lands. Is that still in place? And, and where is that today? So, you know, it's, it's a good question. And and the idea of, of ecosystem service credits, I mean, they've shifted away from saying carbon credits because cap and trade obviously, you know, scared everybody to death. Um, mm. But we've seen this crop back up in species conservation. Um, a lot of different sort of models have cropped up to to uh, to try to avoid ESA listings by by doing pre-listing conservation work, generating credits on 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 ranches for um, taking a variety of, of conservation practices uh, uh, into into your operation and, and and allowing that to be an offset for an oil and gas producer or a mine or wind energy or whatever else. Um, and then we're starting to see the carbon side of that crop back up again. And I, I think. Um, for my purposes, and I'm, I've worked on this issue for years now here in D.C., including before I was here at PLC and NCBA, I worked on it in the oil and gas industry as well on the lesser prairie chicken and uh, dune sagebrush lizard and some of those things. Um, and I mean, I, I feel like we have a lot of people both in our community and in the uh, conservation community as well as in as in industries like oil and gas and mining that that are all in agreement that we need to find a model that works. 
Um, I, I don't think we're quite there yet. I, I think there's a lot of people kind of trying to march ahead and say, nope, I've cracked the code and this is the model. But what we've seen by and large is that um, no one's been able to solve the demand side of that equation without regulatory uh, constriction. So how do you compel people to engage in a carbon credit market or a species conservation market unless, for lack of a better description, they have a gun to their head saying, you will engage in this marketplace? Um, mm -hmm. and, and obviously for our producers, that's never going to be the right answer, right? I mean, we want to make sure that we're creating opportunities for our producers to be compensated if they're undertaking conservation practices that are maybe beyond what, what would be optimum for their production on that land. Because, I mean, I firmly believe that you have a lot of producers in the country, particularly today, that have optimized their operations to the point where they really are kind of getting the maximum production benefit at the same time as realizing the maximum conservation gains. Um, so for them to undertake additional beyond what they're doing now is going to upset that balance. If that's what's needed in a certain area, if credits are needed and, and it's worth it to that producer to, to undertake those additional practices, maybe reduce their stocking rate beyond what they otherwise would or whatever else, that needs to be up to that producer. And, and that needs to be a business decision that that producer makes on his or her own um, when we start putting regulatory pressure on that and making that kind of a forced conversation, that gets into territory we're not comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So I, I, it's, it's a conversation we continue to be willing to have. Um, it's, it, I, I, I guess halting is probably the best way to describe it. I've had um, multiple uh, rounds of this conversation at the White House in the last two years, as have I know some of the NGOs. Um, and, and, you know, we, we just, from my, from my assessment, we're just not there yet. Um, but it is definitely, it is definitely a conversation that's happening in a lot of different, in a lot of different corners of, of the resource world. Um, it's not going away. It's, it's not something I think we can avoid forever, but we, we better make sure we as an industry have a really clear understanding of how we could be impacted by that um, and, and not fall for the easy, the easy play. A lot, of, a lot of these groups that are pushing different credit models kind of play on this, man, there's a lot of money to be made for ranchers in this thing. Well, and I, I, I genuinely believe no one's going to get rich selling credits. Mm -hmm. um, they're just not. But, but boy, maybe there's an opportunity for, for the measuring of, the, of that ecosystem service value to help better illustrate the good work that we are doing and make sure that we're not being unfairly uh, discounted for, for our impact when in reality, a lot of times, you know, we are providing more benefit than we are impact. So I think there are opportunities there, but I, I, I just, per, my own personal feeling is we're a long way from, we're a long way from the finish line on what that's going to look like. I think that's a good pivot to bring the conversation down to the ranch level. Uh, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to help ranchers address various kinds of risk. And by, by ranchers, I mean, families that make all or a significant portion of their income from livestock. You know, these are people that are economically dependent on getting this right. And uh, there's obviously lots of different kinds of risks that operate at different scales. There, there are risks that threaten the profitability of the current year's calf crop. And then you have risks that threaten the existence of the ranch, which is the kind of stuff you guys work on. Death taxes, who's going to take it over? <clears throat> um, you know, long-term economic problems. And ranchers have to be always operating at, you know, the, the full spectrum of those scales. Uh, people who do succession planning talk about working in the business versus working 
on the business, you know, working in the business is getting the cows fed in the morning. Working on the business is thinking through, you know, should we be part of some value-added branded beef program that's going to result in greater revenue? Or, you know, should we consider a conservation easement that purchases some of the development rights of the ranch and provides a shot in the arm in terms of income? Uh, you know, both of those kinds of work are necessary. And in a business where the management is also the staff or is part of the staff, it can be difficult to maintain these sometimes competing perspectives. Uh, your thoughts on that? So I, I don't view those as being disparate uh, disparate pursuits. I, I think that anymore, and we, we spend a lot of time on that idea of, of the younger generation of ranchers, uh, particularly in multi-generational operations, um, being part of the national conversation. And, and I think the reason that's so important, I say younger, I mean people my age, right? 40-year-old ranchers mm -hmm. that have parents that are still involved. I mean, mm -hmm. and anyone who's ever been to a, a state cattlemen's association meeting or a state wool growers meeting or an NCBA meeting or ASI knows that this dynamic plays out. The parents are there and, mm -hmm. and they've been going for 25 years or more. And they're deeply involved in policy and they've been in these battles forever. And their kids are home on the ranch uh, running a lot of that day-to-day -day operation. Their kids are in the business. And, and, you know, there is a real disconnect that I see coming down the road if we don't merge those two, those two conversations more. Because we have to know what those pressures are on the day-to-day -day operation uh, for a for a cow calf operation in in eastern Washington, um, we have to know the challenges that that they're looking at in order to have any hope of crafting regulatory framework that's going to help them on the other side of that equation. Um, it, you know, if, if we're looking at uh, administering grazing in a way that provides more flexibility. Um, to get out on an allotment earlier in the year so that you can hit a cheatgrass monoculture when that grass is, is, is good and, and, and productive. Um, knowing full well that it's not going to be usable in July, but knowing that we can come back to it and clean it up again in the fall, um, and then understanding that in a lot of cases that may fall outside the on and off dates of an individual's permit. Um, you know, we have to know what works for an operation, what what actually is feasible for them, because we can provide them all the flexibility in the world. But if they look at that and say, that doesn't pencil with how I run my operation, we've done no good. Um, so I, I think that, you know, merging those conversations and, and looking at them holistically is is a big challenge that, that, that we take really seriously. But, you know, that's why we spend so much time on young producer engagement. That's why NCBA does the Young Cattlemen's Conference. Um, so that we can get producers off the ranch, get them out around the country. I, I mean, it's, if you haven't been, YCC is one of the coolest things we do in this industry because it takes 60 producers from around the country, takes them on a nine-day tour of the beef industry. And if it's done right, which it was my year and every year I've heard about, you're out of your comfort zone, depending on where you come from in the industry, for eight of those nine days, right? So if you're a cow-calf producer, you're right at home when, when we're touring a, 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 an operation, you know, an on-the-ground ranch. But then we go to the feedlot, then we go to the packing plant, then we go to Chicago, we go to McDonald's headquarters, we go to the OSI facility where they make world. McDonald's burger patties. 
Um, mm-hmm. you know, and then you go to DC and, and it's, it's incredible over the course of that nine days to watch these producers get that perspective. You know, they, they feel like they have it, but then they talk to the, you know, the, the, the guy in the production facility in Chicago that is as far removed from their end of the beef industry as, as it is possible. But it gives them a better understanding of the fact that to some extent we are all in this together and, and, you know, we have to be looking at those different, different aspects of the industry and those production folks on the on the end of the value chain have got to start understanding better the challenges that producers are facing on the ground in order to get that mm-hmm. that that product to market so i i you know i i i, I that's a long way of saying I, I really i i i have a hard time separating those two because i do think they're just kind of intrinsically linked yeah i don't think you spelled out that the ycc is the young cattlemen's conference yes um, and I, I was Washington's representative of the YCC back in 2001. What year did you do it? I did it in 2016. Okay. You weren't quite as young as I was when I did it. <laughs> Probably <laughs> meant I went to bed a little earlier. <laughs> you mentioned that you hear from ranchers and see on the ground that a lot of public lands and private lands both are being managed in a much more sustainable manner than they were 100 years ago. Uh, I think – at least in Washington State and Idaho and probably Oregon, we also see quite a few uh, large land leases that were maybe held by the same family for 100 years, and those have changed hands. And you've got guys that are my age uh, that are applying some new thinking on how to manage that. It's it's also my impression, and I think there's documentation of this, that range condition on most public lands is either improving or is quite good. Uh, do you get that sense from ranchers that you work with? I, I do. I think that our producers are incredibly proud of the work that they do. Um, and I think that that shows in, in range conditions or around the West. We've, we, this goes back to the, the misinformation uh, discussion we were having earlier. You know, the environmental community, and not all of it, but, but some of the usual suspects, the Western Watersheds Project, Center for Biological Diversity, hammer on this idea of of range conditions over and over and over again and they're really they're really focusing more on blm's information shortcomings in their system more than they are the reality of conditions on the ground and and the reality of those conditions on the ground uh, are, are are a far better story and and you know our producers are unqualified experts by and large in in managing those range conditions i mean you know as well as i do you go to a, a producer meeting and you're going to talk to a room full of people who are uh and not just experts in nepa and the endangered species act and and i i you know and other regulatory issues but in in obviously the the nuts and bolts of their business and they've all figured out that the better their range conditions are the better their end product is going to be it's good for their business to make sure that yeah. those conditions are are as as fertile and productive as possible, and and the fact that that concept is so hard for some people outside of our industry to digest sometimes never ceases to amaze me. You know, this idea that we're we're all just out there laying waste to the public lands and grazing it to the bone and 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 you know letting erosion take over an invasive species um, is insane for anyone running a business. I mean, that's just not how how anybody would approach that. 
Um, and, and certainly, I think that as we've understood technology more and, and, and more research has come out, uh, we've seen producers grab onto those, those emerging concepts and, and really run with them with an eye towards the fact that what works really well on my ranch might be a disaster on yours. And, and so I think we've always got to be cognizant of the idea that um, it, 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 where we really make progress here is at the ground level. And, and that can be different on one side of a mountain than it is on the other. Um, and, and that's an important concept to, to keep in mind as well is, uh, you mm -hmm. know, embrace all of these, these new technologies, embrace all of this new thinking, um, but make sure you do it in a way that applies to your operation specifically. And then it's our job to educate policymakers nationally that, that we need that flexibility to make sure that you can apply what works where you are and I can apply what works where I am. To collect golden eggs, you've got to keep the golden goose healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made that up. I, you know, a lot of ranchers have said to me, you should have seen what this looked like 15 years ago. I mentioned this in the session with Jeff Herrick uh, a couple of weeks ago. What they almost always mean by that is that it looks better than it did 15 years ago. And sometimes they've got some photographs or something to back that up. And oftentimes they don't. I can think of several different scenarios uh, that, that would lead someone to consider some kind of rangeland monitoring. And I want to talk about that on both private and public land, you know, one scenario is that a guy takes over some some rangeland or forest that uh, has had hard use for some time, and he's managing differently than the last guy, and he wants to know, is it improving? You know, another scenario is that somebody's got a piece of range ground that they feel like is in good shape. You know, it's going to, the species composition is going to ebb and flow a little bit in response to environmental variables. But in general, it's healthy and probably isn't going to change a lot. Uh, and, and maybe they want monitoring that provides some kind of an early warning system of uh, a, a problem if if a problem pops up, you know, kind of a general surveillance rangeland monitoring. Uh, I've also seen a number of situations where somebody has, you know, what what is objectively pretty healthy public land, but they've got some political pressure against public lands grazing. They want to know, you know, should I be doing something separate from what the agency may or, or may, may not be doing to protect themselves, to show that their grazing management is maintaining healthy rangeland. And I think one of the challenges is that on most public land, uh, you know, a permittee or a lessee believes, not without some basis, that the agency should be conducting some monitoring. Uh, so to kind of jump ahead here, to what extent do you think ranchers should be pursuing some form of rangeland monitoring on their own, particularly on public lands? Well, I, you know, I personally believe that your, your best defensive weapon is monitoring. I mean, and and so for for me, looking at the situation and trusting the agency to do that monitoring for me is is I, a bet I wouldn't be willing to make. Um, and and you know I I understand I say that uh, with an understanding that there's a lot of fear of what happens with that data and why on earth would I give these guys anything more than you know than I have to and and you know that contentious kind of old thinking about about. Uh, monitoring. But the, the reality is the groups that want to see our industry put out of business 
are robustly involved in the monitoring world at this point. They are on the ground and ranchers mm-hmm. who know uh, the site of those Western watersheds, you know, range monitoring folks when by the by their Subaru parked at the, you know, at the edge of their gate, uh, know exactly what I'm talking about. So, it, you know, the best defense to that is to build your own record and and to have that that uh, that detail available so that you can have that conversation and say, you know, your BLM uses their aim system based on on random plots. And, you know, the, the, the conversation we always have with the, the, the folks who, who devised aim is, well, you know, you throw the plots up in the air and they land wherever they land on the on the ranch and you're going to get a good cross section, even if one lands in the middle of a stock tank and the other lands on top of a tree. Um, you know, we're going to get a, a, a result that, that that's that's useful uh, when you average them all out. Well, how do we how do we ensure against that not working properly? The only way we do that is for the permittee to be out there on the ground building their own record so that if it doesn't play out uh, the way it should or if that what's what's derived from that BLM monitoring or Forest Service monitoring doesn't line up with with your own perceptions as a producer of of that of the range condition, you can go to the tapes, right? You can go to your your Mm-hmm. documentation of those conditions and say absolutely disagree with you here are the pictures from these same spots you know every however often over the course of the year and and better yet here's the progress over the last five years and here's what we've done with invasives in this in this pasture and here's here's how we've managed this and here's pre-fire conditions you know i mean we we, we spend so much time talking about post-fire recovery um and and we all too often don't have enough detail on the front end to make the argument that we know needs to be made that, you know, this wasn't grazed enough. There was too much residual dry matter out on this allotment. There was too much grass left. There were too many stands of cheatgrass. You know, we, we didn't do enough fire breaks, whatever the case may be. But what we always lack is is extensive documentation. Um, and and I, I sure in running my business wouldn't trust anybody else to do that for me without me having a really involved hand in that. So I, I think that's a challenge that, that, that we've really got to start confronting in the industry is, is making that a, a safe place for producers to, to engage for their own, for their own defense, because, you know, these challenges aren't going away. They're getting more sophisticated and we need to get more sophisticated along with them. It seems like at least on private, large private lands and even some public lands in the Northwest that you have, uh, a, a shift toward toward awarding grazing leases based on a lessee's ability to manage toward non-forage production goals. Uh, you know, the agency may have wildlife habitat goals, or it could be sage grouse. It could be uh, you know game species. It could be a number of things. But they're selecting a, a lessee or a permittee based on their maybe demonstrated ability in other places to manage toward, um, you know, these ecosystem services goals. Have you seen that in other places? And and what are some ways that ranchers could demonstrate that? Well, I mean, you're talking about non, non-federal leases and, and, and permits. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think that that's, that's obviously going to vary based on where those decisions are being made. If, if a particular desired condition is, is being sought by a state agency on their, on their state trust lands, um, in order to balance the equation for sage grouse, say, you know, or, or, or whatever the case may be by more and more, we're hearing about wildlife migration corridors. And, you know, when we start talking about 
how on earth we're going to tackle migration corridor conditions across 150 miles, you know, spanning multiple states and multiple jurisdictions, um, that becomes more and more important because, um, you know, you might have those those choke points as they've as they've started to be known um, at some point on private land or, or in some mixed environment um, where you might see the states start to come in and say, hey, we, we really have need in this area to, uh, you know, facilitate movement of mule deer. And, and so we want to make sure that whatever permittee gets this permit, if it's in the kind of environment where there isn't a preference right in place or some kind of a controlling interest in that grazing permit, um, which obviously, you know, is important for us to respect, uh, regardless of, of goals beyond those, those extraordinary conditions. Um, you know, I, I, I think that probably is something we're going to see more and more of, um, because, it kind of comes along with the idea that grazing is such an important part of achieving those goals rather than being looked at as an impact. Uh, it's, it's being looked at as a very necessary tool. So wherever there's, wherever there's not a, 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 a property interest there, uh, to protect on behalf of a, of a generational family ranch, um, that that's that's sort of low hanging fruit for those for those state agencies and private landowners, particularly if we look at some of these conservation trusts and things like that that are trying to trying to meet some of those objectives. Um, you know, obviously that's that's their that's their land. They can make those choices if they want to. But I, I would expect to see that that pick up, uh, particularly going back to that credit uh, uh, mitigation credit conversation. Um, where there are opportunities to kind of consolidate and manage for a specific, you know, kind of credit farming, for lack of a better description, on a particular piece of private land. I, I could definitely see that uh, picking up steam over the next couple of years. You talked about averages and, and random sampling and the statistical validity of, of monitoring has been one of the concerns, you know, one of the barriers to, I think, people getting it done Uh Charlie Orchard, who built the land EKG monitoring system based on the indicators of rangeland health that are in the ecological site descriptions, uh, illustrates the fallacy of averaging uh, by talking about a guy who's sitting at a white man's campfire in the winter. A white man's campfire is one yep. that's too big. His boots are on fire <laughs> and his butt is frozen, but on average, he's just right. <laughs> you know, but the idea is that... The, one of these barriers is that you have to have a large sample sizes to have results that mean something, and that often involves following a rigorous sampling protocol that takes a lot of time to set up, uh, may require specialized technical training, and, and even then, what you get out of it may not be acknowledged as valid data by agencies. Uh, in the last session, Jeff Herrick with the Hornado Experiment Station and New Mexico State University said that this relatively new land potential knowledge system that they have developed might be the holy grail of rangeland monitoring uh, because it, it incorporates some of that randomness into a, a kind of a, a non-technical sampling protocol. Uh, what, what is your experience with the development of land PKS and can you recommend it to ranchers? Well, we've been working with Jeff and his team. We had him present Land PK PKS at our 50th anniversary PLC meeting in Park City last year. Um, and Jeff and I uh, talk about this uh, pretty regularly. You know, we, we have been actively monitoring 
uh, for lack of a better term, I guess these these different uh, app based <laughs> solutions as they as they progress, because we're looking for those opportunities to lower the bar- barrier for entry for producers, um, and and it's right. you know it comes back to talking to one of our bigger permittees and and them telling us that monitoring right now is six full days of their operational year. Um, that is that's just not achievable for every permittee or every private landowner for that matter. But it is important yeah. that we get to a place where they can start building that record. Um, and if, and if we can, we can utilize technology and we, you know, we, it's funny, we always tell producers, Hey, you've got a smartphone in your pocket, document, take pictures, record this stuff. So the, the, the obvious logical evolution of that is, is into a, a an app like land PKS that can, uh, that can do that in a in a way that is really going to generate usable data and and contribute to the to the conversation in a in a positive way. Um, and and I mean you know back to this idea that this data is being generated whether we're involved or not. Um, you know the the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the NRCS and uh, uh, Montana State rolled out the uh, the RAP system last year. Um, that's that that's that satellite based uh, monitoring system um, that's open to the public and and is really amazing technology. But I think everyone that's that's looked at it or been involved with it understands that, boy, it's going to really require a lot of uh, ground truthing to make that usable data. Um, and and so something like land PKS can can really aid in, in building that that three dimensional record of, of what we're actually seeing on the ground. And it can take some of the randomness out of. Um, out of that monitoring in its current form. So, I mean, we're, we're very interested in land PKS. Um, you know, we're hoping to, to get a, a further demonstration of it here in the, in the, in the remainder of this year. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's on our radar as far as things that we want to start um, uh, engaging with our producers uh, in order to, to get them comfortable with it, because it's got to be usable for them on the ground. And, and, and by that, I mean, uh, your average permittee that maybe doesn't come to every state cattlemen's meeting and doesn't come to the NCBA convention in New Orleans and doesn't come to Washington D.C. for the legislative conference. Uh, we need we need those folks that maybe if we're really lucky read one trade publication article a month, right? And and maybe listen to their their local ag radio update. Um, or maybe listen to the Art of Range podcast, but but that's as far as they're mm-hmm. going, and and so those are the folks that we really need to reach in order to have a broad enough base to really make an impact. Um, so yeah, we're we're excited by it, and and what we keep echoing to Jeff is this has got to be an approachable tool for those producers on the ground. Yeah, the people you can't see from the road. That's right. Yeah, I, I tried out Land PKS last week on some sites that I'm familiar with and have some data on, and I was pretty impressed at the usability and the quality of the data. Uh, To kind of wrap up here, what else can ranchers do to be responsible permittees? And by responsible, I mostly mean, you know, trying to be uh, pursuing social sustainability uh, because public lands ranching depends on us telling our, our story well. Any any take home messages on what what one thing you want listeners to remember or do? Well, so I, I never give me an opportunity like that tip because I've got more than <laughs> one. Um, you know, I first of all, I mean, I do believe really strongly in telling our story, but we need to get better at telling it to other people. We're really good at telling each other our story. And and I think that gets us into trouble sometimes because it creates an echo chamber. 
Um, and, and we need to get better at, at telling our story to folks who have no idea how uh, this industry makes money or, or the good that we do. Um, you know, and, and I think that's something that, that the livestock associations can really help with as we get better at, at finding ways to, to reach out. But, you know, don't be afraid to engage with, uh, with your neighbors or, or, uh, you know, folks that, that encounter your ranch, uh, as, as, you know, from a recreational perspective. And that sort of leads me to my second point. I, you know, the environment, particularly in the, in the West is changing rapidly. And we see this in some of the outdated, regulations that impact grazing. Uh, when a lot of those things were written 40 years ago, we didn't have the recreational footprint that we have today. Uh, there's been an explosion of, of public access and public use in the West. So our permittees from a, from a social perspective, um, unfortunately, have a more complex workload now because, you know, you do have um, a, a huge number of suburban folks that are buying, you know, four wheelers in, in, in four packs for their family to go out to public land on the weekend. Um, they're, they're camping and they're hunting and they're hauling half million dollar motorhomes out and they're camping on your, on your stock tank, uh, for a month at a time. And, and, you know, we're, we're having those conversations with forest service and BLM and we're working and, and with some of the recreation groups to, to find ways to manage that. But, uh, you know, ranchers have got to show up for that conversation and, and we have to start, uh, you know, reaffirming the idea that, look, we, we understand that we're operating in a multiple use environment. We've always understood that. But we also need to make sure that everybody is, is being held to uh, a similar standard. For years, ranchers have been the only ones subject to a measuring stick. Uh, and those other multiple uses, by and large, come and go at their leisure. Um, they're not necessarily paying fees to be there. Um, and, and look, they're, they're the public. They pay taxes. It's public land. Um, that's valid. But we we have we've really got to start engaging in that recreation conversation. We're certainly taking that on nationally um, because I, I truly believe that is going to become the dominant the dominant conversation in our industry in the next few years in the West is is how we interact in that changing environment and how we make sure that those folks that come crashing through our gates on the weekends understand that they're entering a live agricultural environment. They're entering a managed environment. And, and they're entering an environment that has a lot of different work going on behind the scenes that you can't necessarily see from the surface. It's not row crop, right? It's, it's agriculture just the same, but with, with a, a thousand more moving parts because of the sensitive species that we're facilitating habitat for, because of the water sources that we're protecting, um, because of the, 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 you know, the, the different uh, forage values that we're managing for. Um, it, it, it's, it is a highly complex environment. It's not just open, abandoned land that you can go, um, that you can go do whatever you want on. Um, so I, it, that's that's really that's really something I guess I would ask ranchers to start thinking more about. Um, you know, be be pissed. I mean, for lack of a better description, and 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 rightfully so that that you have people that aren't showing respect for the land that you make your living on, um, and then you're left holding the bag for it. But let's engage in the conversation. Let's let's make sure we're we're documenting that too. Let's make sure our voices are heard, and and let's be looking for opportunities to to reaffirm our position in that landscape. Very good. Uh, again, my guest today is Ethan Lane with the Public Lands Council. Ethan, thank you for your time, and I hope you get some time to enjoy the spring weather in Washington, D.C. today. Thanks, Tip. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. 
If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.